We continue our series uh, looking through quite a few of the stories um, of Jesus in Luke chapter in in uh, the book through the book of Luke, the account of Jesus' life written by Doctor Luke, uh, who carefully compiled all these things and by the instruction of the Holy Spirit wrote down for us um, a, an account of Jesus' life so that we might know him. And we're looking at, focusing on looking at the marvelous works of Jesus, the great things he had done, so that we might see him as greater and that we might trust him more. And this passage that we're going to look at this morning, I think, is particularly suited to that. And so let's give attention to God's word as we look at Luke chapter 8, verses 22, and we'll read through verse 39. Let's give attention to God's holy inspired word. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid." Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region, the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and all over town, told all over town, how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. O oh Lord, your word gives us more joy than great riches, for indeed in it are the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, open our hearts to hear and receive what you would teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is interesting. I have um, the notes from two sermons ago. 
So I'm going to see if I have the right one um, here. Yes, here it is. All right. Let's try this again. So one of the pictures that the Bible uses uh, to describe the world is a sea. Because the world is like the sea in that the sea is, it has storms and is rough. And it's something that is intimidating. It's big. It's not something that we can control. And so the world is like that, that sea. And it is a scary thing oftentimes to be sailing in this world. And we can see that in our day. Of course, there's many challenges in every time. But, you know, the world has had a, a period of, of relative peace and prosperity. I mean, there's always going to be conflicts. But it seems like the waves are beginning to move with, with uh, Russia on the border of Ukraine, China threatening Taiwan, and it could change things a lot and make a very different world than what we've been used to over the past few decades. And so it's like the sea is starting to convulse. And so it's really hard to deal with this because these are big issues that in many ways are completely out of our control. There's very little we can do about it. And so there's two responses that we can make to this. One is just to, to let anxiety take over us, and that happens at times. And the other is just to bury our head in the sand like the ostrich and pretend like nothing's happening. But Neither one is a real effective strategy because one disengages from the world, the one lets the world overcome us. So how do, we, how do we face the world in this choppy and stormy sea and have enough, uh, f- have enough encouragement and peace to be able to engage with the world? Well, the answer is given to us in this passage, and it is that faith in the greatness of Jesus over the world is what will give us peace in the midst of the storms. And so we're going, to see this, we're going to see this as we look at these two stories, these two accounts of Jesus' life. One is in the storm, and then the other is in the demon army. So let's look at those in turn. First the storm, and then the demon army. Much of what Jesus experiences in his life takes place around the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is really like a large lake, in the northern part of, of Israel. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a place where there's, there's a lot of lush vegetation and farming takes place. And it's also a place where people can fish and, and where people can get their livelihood. And that's what the disciples did. But one of the things about the Sea of Galilee is it is also known not only for its beauty, for its provision, for its life-giving water, but also for its great storms. Because the Sea of Galilee is like at the bottom of a bowl. And so the storms that are on the mountains have come kind of sweeping down the mountains and surprise people with these storms. So the disciples knew about these things. They had probably experienced them before. But one of these happened, it says in Luke 8, 23, a squall is what it describes it, a big storm, came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And so these experienced fishermen who had spent their whole lives on the sea, fishing and experiencing this lake, were scared. And in the midst of this, we see something amazing about Jesus. One thing we say about Jesus is that he's great. He's awesome. He's above anything we could imagine or think. But he also took upon himself human weaknesses. So here he is in the boat, and what had he done? 
he, fell, he had fallen asleep. And it's interesting, this is the only time in all four accounts of Jesus' life that we read of Jesus falling asleep. And it's in the middle of a storm. And the disciples, who are scared, turn to Jesus, they wake him up, and they said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And so what does Jesus do? He gets up, and it says that he rebuked the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. Now, it's easy for us to just pass over this because you probably heard this story before. Maybe you haven't. But many of you have. And you say, yep, that's what Jesus does. He calms the storm. But they hadn't experienced anything like that yet. And here Jesus does this. He rebukes the storm and it stops. And then he made another rebuke. He rebuked their faith. Where is your faith? He asked them. Now it's an interesting question. We might wonder, why does he say here, where is their faith? After all, did they have any promise, specific promise from God, that they would survive this storm? No, not that I know of. So why would they have faith? They might have some hope. They might think that things might turn out well. But why could they say we trust God in the midst of the storm? Well, one answer that we might give is that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And they knew his destiny. And so they should have trusted in him, that God was going to keep him alive and continue to do his work through him. So that's possible. But I think it's probably better for us to think that the, Jesus is asking them to have a general confidence in God's care that gives us peace even in the midst of storms like this. It's kind of what Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 12. He, he's talking to them about their anxieties and their worry that they have about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, how they're going to have health care, how they're going to have a place to live. And he says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In other words, in the midst of the uncertainty of life's provision, you can trust in the Heavenly Father. He's not saying that these things aren't problems. He's saying that there's a a resource above that, which is your Father's care of you. Over that, he takes care of the sparrows. He'll take care of you. There, so he says this, just a little ways down in Luke chapter 12. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. It's a rather shocking statement. I think there's a lot to worry about, right? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Now, Jesus is not saying we should just have a carefree attitude like nothing matters and anything that. What he's saying is that you have a father who cares for you and you can trust him. That's the faith that I think Jesus is talking about. Now, there's an interesting uh, example of this. Well, let me just say this. I still think that God uses these types of things to challenge our faith. He brings us into storms. And there's actually a, an example of this from history that has stuck in my mind, in part because it's a story of John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, after whom I am named. My full name's John Wesley White. Everybody is, since my birth has called me Wes or Wesley. 
And John Wesley was an amazing man, and he did amazing things. He preached the gospel all over England. He started churches. He kept churches. He revitalized churches. He brought tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. And what did God use in order to bring him to that place where he could go out, out through England and preach to everybody? He used a storm. John Wesley had left England, and he was on his way to Georgia, which at that time was a colony, and he was going to preach the gospel there. And on, that, on his way to Georgia, there was a big storm, and it threatened the ship. And John Wesley was terrified, and he thought he was going to die. But on the ship, there were some other Christians. They were Moravian Brethren, which is another group of Christians. And these Moravian Brethren were completely calm in the midst of the storm. They would sing psalms. They could find themselves in peace. And what John Wesley saw was like, there is a faith there that I have not yet recognized. And so he began to talk to them, and eventually he realized the joy and peace that people could have in just believing in Christ. And he realized that he hadn't understood the gospel, he hadn't understood the good news, and now he understood it, and he realized that he didn't need to have fear in the midst of the storms, that he could find joy and peace through faith in Christ. And the result of that was that after a little bit of time working in America, he went back to England, and he went all over England telling people how much God had done for him. And the result was a great awakening and a great amount of people coming to Christ. And I think God still uses storms to increase our faith. What if we looked at things that scare us as opportunities instead of just problems? Opportunities to exercise our faith in the Lord of the storms the one who is above them. This is what I think is described in Psalm 112, verse 7, which maybe is one passage which Jesus himself meditated on, describing the man who fears the Lord. It says, he will have no fear of bad news. Why? Because his heart is steadfast, trusting in Jehovah. That's the faith we need. What we need in the midst of a world full of storms is a greater sight of Jesus. We need to see his wonder as the one who is eternal God, but yet who has become a man to bring us salvation. The one who sleeps like because he is a man, but the one who rebukes the waves, and they are stilled because he is God. The disciples were still just beginning to get this. When they saw this, they were filled with amazement and wondered. Who is this, they said. He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? A great question indeed. When we get clarity on the answer, we'll have a way to calm in the midst of the storm. Now let's go on to the second passage, which we'll touch a little bit more briefly. So behind the storms of the world there is a bigger storm. One thing the Bible teaches us is that there are realities that we cannot see. We cannot see God, but he is there. 
We also cannot see the angels or the demons, but they are there, and they are a factor in this world. And indeed, when we are dealing with the world and we see all its problems and we see all its evil, we need to see that this isn't just about people. Behind the people are demonic, uh, demonic actors, Satan and his hosts, and they have come to steal, they have come to kill, and they have come to destroy. Jesus is the Lord who can rebuke them, and they will flee, and that's what we're going to see here in the story. But we need to remember that as we, as we see the threats around us from people, we always need to remember as Christians our duty is to, to, to not let our passions and our concerns overwhelm us and treat them as if they are ultimate. We remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and we remember that Jesus is over our great enemy, Satan. Now, what happens here is, once again, we go back to the lake. On there, in the Sea of Galilee, there were, there were two different groups of people living on it. On one side was the Jewish people, the people chosen by God. On the other side, in the region of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, were, were Gentiles, people who were, were not part of the chosen people of God. They were the Gentiles, like most of us. And you can see this from the fact that they have a herd of pigs. You would not have pig herders in Israel because it's kind of, the pigs were sort of symbolic of the separation and uncleanness of the nations in the biblical perspective. And then those who were, though the Jewish people would not eat pork. Now in this, as they come across, they, they meet a man, and this man is in a totally hopeless situation. Which again, think of it as sort of symbolic of the situation of the nations without the light of the glory of God. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. The people of the area had tried to control him, but they could not. Many times it, the, it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. So this man was under the total domination of, of demons in such a way that it, it, it made him a horror and outcast to the people around him. And so he comes before Jesus, and these demons recognize who he is. Many people don't know, but the demons knew who he, who he was, and they said, to him, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. They knew who he was. They knew what his power was. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the demon said, Legion. Now, Legion was an, a, a title of a unit in the Roman army. And so it's appropriate because there was a lot of them, but also it's sort of, they're sort of at war against God and everything that's good in this world. And these demons ask Jesus not to torture him. Instead, to throw, him, throw them, cast them into this herd of pigs. Now, it's kind of strange, but Jesus says, yes, I'll do that. And maybe he said, the time for the total defeat of my enemies has not yet come. Who knows exactly the reason? But what happens is that the, the demons go into the pigs, and they go, and they're out of the man. They go into the pigs. The pigs go over the ravine, and they all drown and die. And so 
those who are the pig herders are definitely worried. You lose all the animals you're in charge of, it's a big problem. So they go and they tell the townspeople, hey, this is not our fault, right? This is this guy. He came here and look what he did. And the people are completely amazed. And, you know, they might not have been inclined to believe the story except for the fact that the man whom they had not been able to control and who was so crazy is now standing there in his right mind. And so they see clearly something has gone very different than what they expected. The world is being upended. And what happens when the things we're used to, even if they're bad things sometimes, change? We start to get anxious. And so they say, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here. We're not comfortable with this. This is change. And so Jesus agrees. And he leaves. Notice, Jesus spent most of his time with the Jewish people, but his ultimate goal was to bring light and life to the whole world. But yet, still, they said to leave, and he, and he left. But then something happens with the man who had had the demons cast out. He goes to Jesus, and he begs Jesus, can I go with you? Can I be with you? And there's... And Jesus responds to him and says, no, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So there's a couple remarkable things here. One is, Jesus had done this for him. And yet he says, tell them how much God has done for you. So one of the things we recognize is the amazing truth. One of the most remarkable, amazing, surprising things that's got to sound a little weird to people who are not used to it, is that we believe that this man, Jesus, is actually the manifestation of the eternal God. And that's how Jesus identifies himself. What Jesus does, that's what God has done. Because they have Father and the Son acting together. But then also, that he sends him away. We think that when we come to Jesus, that the thing is to be with Jesus forever. But in a way, Jesus says, you're not going to be present with me. Not yet for most people when they come to him. Instead, they have a mission. They have a task. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So why are we not present with Jesus in his human nature right now? So that we can return home and tell how much God has done for us. That is our mission as Christians. We have other things to do, but that's a very significant thing. And so that's what the man does. He goes home and he tells all these people what God has done for him, what Jesus has done for him. And so let me just try to apply this to you. Do you can you say to anyone, this is how much Jesus has done for me? Maybe you don't feel that Jesus has done anything for you. And what I can tell you is that Jesus still wants to do things for you. Even though he's absent in his human nature, he wants to come into your life. He wants to bring you forgiveness. He wants to bring you healing. And he just wants you to say yes to that. And he invites you to be part of his life and to let, you change, let, let him change you, to make you new. If that's not where you are today, if you've not done that, then I would encourage you to do that today because he's, the offer is still there. As long as you're here, the offer is there. But for many of us, we can say, Yes, we could go, I can go around this room and I could probably tell you 
some of the, a lot of the things that Jesus has done for you. Things that I know you would say if you were asked that question. And what I want to encourage you to do is to remember those things and keep them forceful and fresh in your mind. Let's not forget how much Jesus has done for us. Let's not forget how much he has forgiven us. I think it's easy over time, you know, as we get some distance, maybe between an addiction that we've had, a sin that had overcome us, or wrong things that we have done in the past, that we forget how much we've been forgiven. Now, I know we're still being forgiven in the present, and each one of us is imperfect and needs the grace of God in our lives. But there's also those big ways in which Jesus has delivered us where we're just like, man, this is where I, I can't believe that now I've been moved to this place. The way God has changed our hearts, changed our attitudes, has built new virtues within us. And sometimes we may not even realize it and because it's happened gradually over time. But Jesus has been at work. What I want you to do is to remember those things. Keep those things forcefully in your mind because that's the testimony God has given you of God's work in your life. That's what gives you the opportunity to go out and tell people how much Jesus has done for you. If you keep those things in your mind, then you will have something to share. It's like I'm going to be going to Egypt in a few weeks and um, so one of the, one of the big features of, of Egypt is the Red Sea. And what you'll see is that throughout the Bible, like they, the Lord had opened the Red Sea so the people of Israel could cross. And then he had drowned Pharaoh's army so that they were liberated and freed from their yoke of slavery. And they never got over that. They just kept singing about it over and over again. And that's kind of what we need to do. Because that's what will give us something to share. That's what John Wesley experienced is that he saw the peace and joy that people could have in the midst of the storm. The free forgiveness and grace, God's favor toward us given freely in Christ. And when it gripped him, he went out and told people. When it grips us, we'll remember, we'll tell people. When we remember, we'll see the marvelous works of Jesus that he's done in our lives, and that will lead us to share with others how much God has done for us. And those people who hear us will experience the marvelous works of Jesus as well. Thus may it be. Amen.